Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict, count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one, first degree murder, guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I've said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good used the wrong evening. Line. This is clear and convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Season 4 of Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, and this is Episode 1, Updates, Part 1. Tonight, we're going to talk about new developments in some of the cases we've covered during our first three seasons, uh, including Commonwealth versus Abu Jamal, Wisconsin versus Avery and Dassey, Texas versus Cardi, California versus Cooper, Florida versus DiPolito, and Texas versus Frada, among others. We are a live show, and as always, calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. So, Lisa, I think uh, what I'm going to end up having to do is I'm actually going to end up having to kind of bootleg it the same way I bootleg the audio. Onto the live stream. I'm getting an echo again. I don't know it again. I don't know if I don't know if that's uh, the I, headphones uh, again or what? headphones again or what? Check the cord. I'm I'm checking the cord on my headphones and I don't know if it'll stay there. I am not sure, but right now I'm not getting okay. that echo. Um, okay. So, what I was telling you, basically, as far as the commercial goes, I'm going to kind of have to bootleg it onto the uh, blog talk the same way I do your audio onto the live stream. But we'll make it work to where, okay. to where uh, everything will go go well for this commercial. <laughs> okay, perfect, wonderful. Can't wait to I can't wait to hear it. 
Absolutely. All right. Absolutely. So, I can't wait to get into this stuff. Yeah. Now, how was your time off? We we had the weather. It was. Yeah. You know, they were Thank threatening goodness. rolling blackouts and all that stuff. And then I was Thank under the weather I the never, following week. Thank goodness I never really lost power too bad, but yeah. um yeah. It was uh it was it was definitely my my schedule stayed full trying to get different things for anybody that's a fan of all of our shows here on Podcast Network forty nine. Um, you know, trying to get shows out and all sorts of stuff. So mm-hmm. it definitely ended up coming in handy for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just didn't want to risk being on the air and then having Entergy say, oh, we need to give someone else power now so you don't get any right now. Right. Um, Which they did not have to do, at least not to the West Bank. Right. Right. Uh, Some of my coworkers in other parts of town, yeah. And then I had a lot of coworkers who had pipes burst. Oh, see, I, I didn't see too much of that year. Of course, Texas, it got pretty bad as far as the pipes mm-hmm. and all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we were we were lucky. Um, I, although I think when my dad bought this house, um, he had somebody wrap every pipe that's exposed outside. Mm-hmm before any of the landscaping was put in. So, um, nice. or we could have a pipe burst somewhere and leaking under the house. I don't know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Who knows? So, You'll know when you get but, that done uh, for sure. Yeah, I'm waiting to, uh, I got to, in fact, I got to find out from my sister. She's coming back in town tomorrow. And I've got to find out from her. Uh, let her know to watch because people have been getting extremely elevated water bills. Right. Right. Um, so, all right. So let's get to the uh, topics for tonight. We're going to cover um, A through F in our case okay. list. Uh, if I don't mention a name, I've got a list of names at the end. Uh, that basically there's really nothing new to report with any of those cases. There's nothing going on. Nothing has really changed. And, you know, they're at a standstill right now. Right. Uh, so, of course, right, the first case we have is uh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania versus Mamiya Abu-Jamal, uh, Commonwealth versus Wesley Cook. Um. That is for the 1981 murder of police officer Daniel Faulkner. Uh, if some people recall, I, I don't know whether I reported it or not, but back in 2018, uh, a judge in the Court of Common Police in Philadelphia basically gave Mamiya Abu-Jamal another bite at the appellate apple when he found that a Supreme Court justice should have recused because that justice had been employed at the district attorney's office in Philadelphia. 
in mm-hmm. a period of time that overlapped with Mumia Abu Jamal's prosecution. Mm. Um, okay. The district, the district attorney Larry Krasner, who is very progressive, initially was going to appeal that ruling because it was exceptionally broad. However, the judge ended up narrowing the order and. After the judge narrowed the order, Krasner made the decision not to appeal the ruling. Um, And then a six boxes of of undisclosed documents were found in the district attorney's office. Uh, They included some notes taken by the prosecutor during jury selection. Um, they included a letter from a witness basically saying, I took time off of work. Y'all are supposed to pay me. Um, so there were a, a bunch of things that had been previously undisclosed. Uh, they were found in an out-of-the-way closet in the office, uh, which I can attest happens. I've worked in, you know, I've worked in law offices that have been around for, 30, 40 years, and we have found mm-hmm. boxes unlabeled, unmarked, in a closet at the bottom of a stack of boxes from like 1970s. I once wow. had a client call looking for a will from one of her parents mm-hmm. and went in the will, you know, the will file and no will. And then I was looking for something else on another day a couple months later and I found mm-hmm. that folder with that client's name on it on top of a filing cabinet. Right. In in the library that nobody uses anymore. So, you know, I can attest you find things in a law office where your your main staple is paper you find things in all kinds of surprising places. Right. So uh, the, there's a question and I, I wasn't, it wasn't really clear. I think that that is going to be remanded to the common pleas court, but it's not entirely clear. I don't know that Jamal has even filed a claim, a PCRA claim related to anything in the box. But, again, that was something that Krasner kind of made it known that he's not going to challenge returning that to the trial court Mm -hmm. if Jamal wants to return to the trial court to have that evaluated. Um, That gave some concern to Maureen Faulkner, the the widow of Daniel Faulkner, um, there were a lot, and there's been a lot of things going on in Philadelphia. There was a murder case that Krasner's office, I don't think it was properly handled. And the person who committed the murder basically got off scot-free. Um, okay. And it was a stabbing, uh, basically... What I could, the gist that I could get was that the, the the DA's office was basically blaming the victim in the stabbing rather than the perpetrator, 
And mm-hmm. so they undercharged the perpetrator, and the perpetrator ended up being acquitted mm-hmm. or getting a mistrial. And Krauser said, okay, we're not going to pursue the case. It, it was – I'll look it up and um, get a little bit more information on it, but it was something that would lead one to wonder what Krasner's priorities were as the top law enforcement officer in Philadelphia. Right. Um, Wow. And so initially Maureen Faulkner's attorney attempted to intervene in Abu Jamal's case to perhaps oversee it or have some say in how the different claims were to proceed and and that request was denied by the superior court so they filed a king's bench petition alleging that there was basically a conflict of interest in the district attorney's office that krasner had a conflict of interest because he employs people who have publicly supported abu jamal including one attorney who was local counsel for Abu Jamal right. and signed pleadings and briefs to the appellate court right. in connection with Abu Jamal's case. So, um, and there were concerns and that was uh, basically the Pennsylvania Supreme Court appointed a special master to investigate the claims to take evidence, mm-hmm. to hold hearings. There was some limited discovery done. Um, a lot of it was done under seal because part of it, it involves the reputation of the district attorney in Philadelphia. So um, it's probably better to control what is out there to a degree, um, at right. least until a decision is made. Uh, but I think most of the records have been unsealed. Uh, the special master basically re- recommended in June of 2020 that the King's Bench petition be dismissed because Maureen Faulkner, who was the petitioner and who had the burden of proof, did not produce any evidence that supported a uh, her allegations of a conflict of interest on the part of either Larry Krasner or the district attorney's office. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, basically she produced no evidence that refuted Krasner and his uh, assistant district attorney's testimony sworn under oath that said, no, we believe Mumia Abu-Jamal was guilty and we will defend uh, that conviction. Right in all post-conviction proceedings, you know, and entertained by Abu Jamal or taken by Abu Jamal. So um, that was dismissed in December of 2020. Um, And, you know, while I I understand Maureen Faulkner's position and her feeling as to whether or not Mr. Krasner was going to what she feared is that Krasner was going to basically say, yep, he's entitled to a new trial. Let's give it to him. And then turn okay. around and not, and then turn around and say, oh, I'm not going to prosecute him again. Right. 
Right. Which would be a discretionary decision of the of the district attorney. And I can understand that's a very a very valid concern. But mm-hmm. um there were strategic reasons not to oppose the remand of the case when the boxes were found. Right. Um, the prosecutor who would have the most knowledge about the, the materials contained in those boxes because they, they do appear to be trial materials or for the most part trial or, or shortly after trial um, would be the prosecutor who is now in his 70s. Mm-hmm. And one of the complaints so, was that when the boxes were discovered, Krasner's office didn't interview the prosecutors. But at that time, in another case, there was a judge in the common police court who actually felt that the prosecutor was impeding a PCRA claim because the defense attorney from the trial would not meet with the new attorneys for the petitioner but was meeting with the with the DA's office. So and so it kind of looked like was the appearance of impropriety. So yeah, the DA's office it, was hesitant to interview the prosecutor. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's you know, it it but it's it's they were hesitant to they didn't want anybody to claim that they were trying to influence him. Right, true. Which I believe is what basically is the allegation that was leveled at them when, and it was the defense attorney who didn't want to talk to the petitioner's attorney. He didn't want to assist them because they were they were pointing the fingers at him, saying ineffective assistance of counsel. Yeah, I mean, you know, I so I don't I don't necessarily blame the attorney. But in in this post post fact uh, world that we live in, sometimes even a decision entered into by a defense attorney, based on the allegations being leveled at him by his former client, it's somehow the the DA's fault that he won't meet with the new attorneys making all the allegations against him. Right. Yeah. So, uh, and and compel somebody to meet. You can compel somebody to testify, but you can't compel them to come have a meeting with you, can you? No. You you well you you generally can't. Although I guess if it's really necessary, they they the attorneys for the for the petitioner could have gone into the judge and said, "Look, Your Honor, we want to meet with the." defense attorney we have questions he won't meet with us but I don't know if the judge even in that under those circumstances would even compel him to meet he'd say well we can set it for hearing (laughs) and we can talk to him and then he'll be cross examined Um, but you know it's something again even if they're wrong they may have had valid reasons for handling it in the way that they did. Um, it was a reasonable strategic choice. And then the Superior Court challenge of the remand to the Appellate Court, again, that was another thing. 
when the broad initial order came out, yeah, the DA is going to want to challenge that because you don't want something like that out there to be used by other defendants in the future. But once the judge narrowed his order to apply only to Abu Jamal's case, then, you know, the Krasner felt there was no longer grounds to challenge that order. Now, again, Krasner's office may have been wrong about whether they had grounds to challenge it or not. Um, There are, even the Supreme Court felt that they did have grounds to challenge it, essentially based on the fact that the whole claim was untimely to begin with. Mm-hmm. Because there, this is an appeal in 1991. Abu Jamal requested Castile to recuse at that time, and he refused. And then Abu Jamal didn't say another word about that until the Williams decision came out involving another justice who had been a DA. But there are distinguishing elements because in Williams that particular DA was involved in the prosecution of Williams and was involved in the decision to seek the death penalty whereas Castile was an employee of the DA's office at the time Mumia Abu-Jamal was prosecuted however he never took part in any decisions or any part of Abu-Jamal's prosecution or his direct appeal Okay. So he he didn't have a dog in that fight, essentially. Um, okay. So, but the case is the the uh, the appeal being argued on the briefs, and I think that's another issue that's got to be decided. First of all, because Abu Jamal is no longer on death row. Uh, because he was resentenced to life in prison. Um, His case will not be re-examined by the Supreme Court. It will be re-examined by the Superior Court, Mm -hmm. which is the intermediate appellate level in Pennsylvania, in the Commonwealth. Um, There is briefing that has happened. Uh, Abu Jamal filed an appellant brief on September 3rd, 2019, there was a stay in effect during the King's Bench uh, examination. Uh, that was lifted, and the Commonwealth filed its brief on February 3, 2021. Um, Abu Jamal has a reply brief due on March 17, 2021. He's also attempting to supplement the record. I don't have anything available document-wise but I think he's trying to supplement the record with the documents that were found in those six boxes. That's not really the proper yeah. place. An appellate, an appellate court is not a court of original jurisdiction. An appellate court is there to examine the record as it existed in the trial court. So if you need to supplement, you got to go back to the trial court. And it's not clear whether they're trying to do that or not. 
so uh, that will uh, hopefully I haven't gotten copies of these briefs. I would love to have them, but they're right. not publicly available. Um, and um, so I may be able to get a copy of the Commonwealth's brief. Uh, brief. I'm going to do a little bit of digging. And right. maybe now that the King's Bench petition has been concluded, I would love to talk to Maureen Faulkner's attorney regarding the whole the process the whole process because it's a very interesting it's an interesting thing and this is you know this is a I, the only time I've ever heard of where the victim or a survivor of the victim in a murder case has actually been able to more or less have a higher court determine how how the matter would proceed. And and had they found conflicts of interest in Krasner's uh-huh. office, um, they would have replaced the Attorney General of Pennsylvania. Right. And the Attorney General's office would have taken over the post-conviction claims or defense of the post-conviction claims. Okay. So it could have been quite interesting. Um, yeah. So, and, and there are a lot of issues with with the Kras, you know, Krasner's office and Krasner's tenure as uh, DA of Philadelphia that I would love to talk to this attorney about. So, uh, I'm going to reach out to him now that that's a little bit of time's passed. And see if he's interested in talking to us about the well, King's Bench, and and I think that's also something that that would be unique to Pennsylvania that we wouldn't yeah. even find a procedure or or a any any statute for in Louisiana or Arkansas. Um, you know, the, you might find it in New York, New England, Massachusetts, you know, the original colonies, but you're not going to find it in Louisiana or oh, no, certainly not, not something either. called King's Bench. Yeah. Pennsylvania in and of itself is a little bit, it's its own situation. At- um, hello. How, wait, wait, wait. Hello. I have family from Pennsylvania. Tread carefully. No, I love Pennsylvania. Trust me. I'm a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. I'm just saying the state of Pennsylvania and the way it is set up is an interesting situation in and of itself. Well, because it's a commonwealth, it's not a state. Right, right. I think Massachusetts is a commonwealth as well. Is that the only other commonwealth? Yes. Uh, con- commonwealth of Kentucky, Massachusetts, oh, yeah, Virginia, Kentucky. and Pennsylvania. Oh, uh, Virginia is as well? Virginia, Kentucky, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts. I think there there may or may not be a fifth. I'm not positive. 
I don't think so. Rhode Island's a state. Uh, yeah. New York's a state. Uh, yeah, I don't think anything else up in that Northeast Corridor is a Commonwealth. Yeah. If I'm no. wrong, let me know in the comments or give us a call, <laughs> but I don't think there's a good one. All right, so that that's pretty much it for Abu Jamal. Uh, again, okay. I'm gonna you know keep an eye on this Superior Court. Um, and again, the the issue being determined in the Superior Court may even be whether Abu Jamal can re-argue his appeals of his prior mm-hmm. PCRA claims. Um, right. So the next case we have is Idaho versus Tori Adamchik. Okay. Uh, he and uh, this case involved the murder of 16-year-old high school student Cassie Jo Stoddard. She was a friend uh-huh. of Adamchik and Brian Draper. They uh, wanted to be serial killers. They went to her house, right. hung out, with, or she was house-sitting They went and hung out with her for a while. They left. They came back wearing masks from the movie Scream. One of them was wearing masks from the movie Scream. And um, they stabbed her to death. Uh, Now each one says the other guy killed her. Well, of course. It's going to want to take the lion's share of the blame. And since you can't prove who actually killed her... You can't convict me. Um, at least Adamchik is kind of holding that position. Brian Draper appears kid. in interviews to have accepted responsibility for what he did and his part. And while My he has tried is. to... They were juveniles. They were both sentenced to life. Right. However, they were sentenced to life by a judge who examined all the factors, including their age, their lack of maturity, their uh, unique characteristics of their upbringings and family life, et cetera. So he did just say the statute says you get life, I give you life. He, um, you know, he looked at everything. He said. He took into account some shit. Yeah, he did. So. Uh, Adam Chick had filed a federal habeas claim, and I think when we talked about the case, that was still pending. Right. At the time we talked about it. And uh, one of the issues he's uh, basically challenging again is his conviction. He says, they charged me as a principal, uh, but then they convicted me as an accomplice. They can't do that. Um, he's also challenging his life sentence, and he's challenging the sentencing procedure. Uh, claims that under new Supreme Court precedent, the sentencing procedure that he had was not up to snuff. Um, his habeas claims were denied in November, November 25th, 2019. He filed a motion for reconsideration which was denied on April 21st, 2020. Um, the case went on to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal, and at this point it's pen- it stayed pending a decision in Jones versus Mississippi. 
which uh-huh. is a case that I believe looks at the juvenile sentencing schemes. Uh, and so, so that's where it stands right now. Um, there's a status report that's due on March 18th, 2021, but until the Supreme Court decides Jones versus Mississippi, we're not going to we're not going to know. Uh, I don't. We're not going to know. The, the Ninth Circuit isn't going to do anything, and I don't believe there's any briefing filed or any. Uh, if there is, it'll be supplemented after Jones. So, and I'm I'm looking Jones up right now because um, I do want to see. Status report is due in two weeks from Thursday. So I mean they Correct. gotta come up with something with Jones versus Mississippi pretty quick here, right? To be able to do the same. Well, no the the case will uh, you know the the case will remain where it is right now until the U.S. Supreme Court makes a decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has been fully briefed and it was argued November third of twenty twenty. Okay. Um. And it is a juvenile murder case, and let's see i'm I'm trying to see what the uh what the issues are um, hang on a second. This is whether the sentencing court violates the Eighth Amendment if it imposes a sentence of life without parole upon a ju- juvenile without making a finding of fact on the record that the defendant is permanently incorrigible. Yeah. So that is, and, and that's basically, you know, it comes down to whether or not the argument is, is whether or not there's a magic phrase that a court has to say right. in order to meet the constitutional requirements. And what's scary about that when it comes to death penalty as well as juvenile justice is that a lot of times the goalposts are moved. Right. And um, so you'll have decades of courts looking at factors looking at certain factors and then all of a sudden decades later the Supreme Court comes in and says no no you got to look at this too mm-hmm. or you have to say if you're going to do this you have to say that so it it is kind of scary and what often right. happens is you get people who say the courts were getting it wrong all those years when in reality the courts were doing it the way the Supreme Court said they could. Mm-hmm. So um, we'll have to see, like I said, what the Supreme Court, it was argued in November. So hopefully they should come out with a decision before the end of their term, which I think is in June. Hmm. Okay. So uh, this is a case in which the juvenile defendant 
Um, hang on a second. I'm going to see what the facts are. Um, basically, Brett Jones killed his grandfather because his grandfather would not let his girlfriend stay in the house. Brett was 15. Hmm. So essentially what we're waiting on is to decide if it sounds like to decide if you can be if you can sentence a minor to to life in prison without making everything that goes into that decision part of the case file, correct? Everything you basically, consider going it, into well, the case it's, file. It's basically that in spite of what whatever the court considered in order to sentence Jones to life in 2000, the murder occurred in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he was tried and convicted in Lee County, Mississippi, had a direct appeal. And uh, court sentenced Jones to a term of life, and under the parole statute in Mississippi, Jones was not eligible for parole. Uh-huh. And this was in 2006. Following Miller versus Alabama, the Mississippi Supreme Court set aside Jones's sentence of life without parole and remanded the case for a new sentencing hearing. So in 2015, Jones put on a new sentencing hearing and had additional witnesses testify. Uh, And the court, after that testimony, found that Brett Jones was not entitled to parole under eligibility under Miller. Uh, The trial court's decision was affirmed by the Mississippi Court of Appeals. And the Mississippi Supreme Court uh, dismissed the writ of certiorari after it was granted, and they held an oral argument, Um, and it was dismissed five to four. So then Jones came to the Supreme Court. And basically, yeah, they're, they're basically saying... The judge didn't say he was incorrigible or permanently incorrigible. Therefore, he should be entitled to parole. So, until the U.S. Supreme Court so, decides... So, essentially, they're not necessarily Jones, even fighting the sentence. They're fighting the fact that he should be eligible for parole. We're at some point correct. eligible for parole. Correct, because in in maybe, well, what happens in some states, their parole statutes, if you are sentenced to life and it's an indeterminate sentence, that's an indeterminate sentence, you can't become eligible for parole because you can't serve a portion of an indeterminate sentence. Right. Life is literally life in that case. Life is However life, and, and 80% of life is, 
you don't know. You're right. So who knows how long um, survive in prison? Some some states no longer use life. Right. You know, they I use think some years. states we've talked about. Yeah, I was going to say some states consider life. I think you said like eighty Texas, years, and then I think. Texas is like 35 years, 38 years, 39 right. years in different in different four years, yeah. Um, you know, in some states say if you're sentenced to life, you serve a minimum of X years. So, mm-hmm. but Mississippi is one of those states where if you're sentenced to life, you're not eligible for parole. Right. And life in life. in the in the Supreme Court decisions, they've never said you can never sentence a juvenile to life. What they've said is you can't sentence them to life as a mandatory sentence in a murder case or in an armed robbery case. Mm-hmm. That there has to be, with a juvenile, there has to be kind of a balancing of the of the factors inherent to juveniles immaturity lack of understanding of consequences et cetera et cetera um sometimes also the life that they lead or live but mm-hmm. um also balancing it with the nature of the crime the severity of the crime and the severity basically the severity of the harm caused by the juvenile in commission of the crime Okay. So, uh, so I'll keep an eye on Jones versus Mississippi, and again, that's the only aspect. But the Ninth Circuit's not going to decide part of Adamchik's claims, and then come back and decide the the sentencing aspect on its own. They're going to decide everything at once. So essentially, once Jones versus Mississippi is decided, this should all start flowing pretty quick. As far as it, once Jones versus Mississippi is decided, um, Adamchik's case will move through the Ninth Circuit. If it has been briefed, briefs will probably be supplemented. If it hasn't been briefed yet, they'll set a briefing schedule. They'll decide whether to, you know, take it on the briefs or to have oral argument. And um, okay. so they'll, you know, they'll determine what to do from that point. Okay. Um, and I mean, they've already denied one petition, I think on the same issue as far as the life sentence issue. Yeah. Based on Miller. So, uh, it's unlikely that the ninth circuit is going to offer any relief to a regardless of how. Of how the uh, how the uh, Supreme Court rules, right, right. But like I said, I'll keep I'll keep up with it and and uh, keep an eye on the Ninth Circuit claims. Okay. All right. So next is uh, State of Tennessee versus Sedley Alley, and it's actually more. The estate of Sedley Alley versus the state of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, 
1980, I think it was in 1984, um, which I should have written down the years for these things, uh, for these crimes. Uh, Sedley Alley kidnapped and brutally murdered a Lance Corporal in the United States Marine Corps at the Millington Naval Air Station or at Orgill State Park, which is uh, near the Millington Naval Air Station in Memphis, Tennessee, or Millington, Tennessee, um, in August of 1985. Right. In 2004, Sedley Alley submitted a request for DNA testing, which was found that he did not meet the criteria of the Tennessee statute um, that would enable him to test DNA primarily because exculpatory DNA would not refute his confession to the murder, Uh his admissions to his wife, his statements while he was being evaluated for multiple personality disorder and an insanity defense at a state hospital and various other evidence of his guilt that was presented in the course of his trial and which was never refuted by his advocates during state post-conviction claims and federal habeas claims. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, in 2006, just before he was executed, the Innocence Project came in and they tried to get DNA testing by arguing that all of the witnesses mistook a Dodge Aspen station wagon for Sedley Alley's USS Enterprise size Mercury station wagon. The Dodge Aspen station wagons like the USS Minnow. And you can land aircraft on a Mercury station wagon. Yeah, it is a big freaking car. I went ahead and looked ahead on this and kind of Googled what a Dodge uh, Aspen station wagon is. And for those that are watching, actually, I'll pull it up. Uh, I'll pull up what a Dodge Aspen station wagon looks like and then what a uh, what a nineteen seventy uh, station yeah which one and it's a nineteen seventy one mercury I, I think it was like a nineteen seventy one or nineteen seventy two. Mercury okay, so we have a Colony I'll Park, I believe. Screen. I'll share my screen and show everybody what mm-hmm. a nineteen seventy one Dodge Aspen station wagon looks like. No, no, no. And then what's the the, the Dodge Aspen wasn't made until 1976. 1976. Okay. Okay. Yeah. My bad. My bad, y'all. Or 1978. Bad, okay. I mean, this is another. This is another. You know, another discrepancy. Allie's 1972 vehicle is not going to look like a a vehicle that could have been a 1980 vehicle. Because they don't offer a I year, mean, but the Aspen was only produced, I think, 78 to 88. So here's my thing. The big difference that I noticed is the size of the hood on the Mercury. The size of the hood on the Mercury is huge 
minus the the size on the Dodge, um, the Dodge Aspen, not as uh-huh. big. Uh, it's more of a normal size uh, hood. But yeah, on that Mercury, yeah. that hood is huge. Yeah. Uh, the, the model years for the Dodge Aspen are 1976 to 1980. Okay. So even inherently, they're going to look different. A, a 1976 Mercury is going to look different right. from a 1972. I mean, like I said, there's, there's, there's similarities in that they're station wagons, and you know some of them have they have four tires. <laughs> they have four tires, right? That freaking hood is huge on that Mercury. Yeah. Man. Well, the wheelbases, you know, the wheelbase on the on the Dodge Aspen station wagon. Hang on, I'm gonna see if I'm gonna see if Google. Well, I was about to say um, the wheelbase is one hundred eight. Wheelbase is 108.7 inches. I'm going to look up Mercury. The wheelbase on the Colony Park, 126 inches. So you said 108 on the Merc and then the, or no, 108 on the Aspen. And then 108 yeah. on the Aspen. So, I mean, that's yeah. still a good 20 inches. I probably wouldn't be able to notice that from a picture, but, yeah. You'll probably be able to yeah. notice it if you saw them apart, or if you saw them. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, the... the um, Plus, here the I have a... them look completely different, too, honestly. In my oh, opinion. yeah. The, the, yeah, the, the headlight, the, there's... The hood is bigger on the Merc, and the front, the grill section looks a lot different yeah. as well. Oh, yeah, the grills are different, and, and even the even the style and shape of the headlights are different. Right, right. Um, and some of these Mercuries have the, um, the peekaboo headlights. Right. Where I did notice that. When the during the when you turn the lights on, it's like they open their eyes, and then when the lights are off, there's a cover over the lights. Right. So, yeah. So yeah, that's uh, I, I I stand by that opinion. Um, I don't think anybody with half a brain could ever confuse one one of those vehicles for the other. I just think it's impossible, but. In 2006, that was the argument, that the real killer was Suzanne's boyfriend, John Borup, that he had access to a a Dodge Aspen station wagon, and that the witnesses, that he liked to soup up the muffler, and that the witnesses mistook the Dodge Aspen station wagon for Sedley Alley's Mercury station wagon. Um, That certainly Again... The the DNA request in 2006 was denied because Sedley Alley did not meet the criteria. In other words, exculpatory results from DNA would not refute his confessions 
would not refute all the other evidence, the eyewitness testimony, even what they offered to try and say all the eyewitnesses were wrong wasn't strong enough um, to meet the burden to get DNA testing. Now, one of the other things that was kind of an ancillary point, one of the things Innocence Project said it wanted to do was to run the DNA through CODIS to try and identify the unknown serial killer that had to have committed this crime. Because they don't put all their eggs in the Borup basket. Right. They also say, and we get DNA that's unknown, we run it through CODIS. Well, at the time, the the interpretation of the statutes was did not include running the DNA through a database to try and identify a third party. And so that was where it stood. Allie was executed in June of 2006, and everybody thought that's the end. Well, then in 2011, the Tennessee Supreme Court had a case called Powers in which the gentleman was convicted of a rape. Um, He wanted to run DNA. He also wanted to go run DNA through CODIS because he swore he had nothing to do with the victim. And um, initially the trial court said, nope, can't run it through CODIS. Well, that was appealed. And I and I believe he was an innocent, innocent project client. So, um, you know, this was one of their cases. And mm-hmm. the Tennessee Supreme Court said, well, you know, we did say you couldn't do it, but, you know, now eh, that's not a bad idea. So, okay, if, if, it's, if it's available, of course, running through a database, if you have both laboratories do your DNA testing, they cannot submit any of that to the database because the databases right. are reserved solely for law enforcement. So it's kind of I, I don't and I don't know whether Bode can send its data to law enforcement and then law enforcement submits it. I don't quite know how that works. And oddly enough, I don't think Innocence Project has has ever actually done it in one of their cases. But that's neither here here nor there. Um the Tennessee Supreme Court did say in 2011 that, you know, a, a third-party DNA database search is also something that can be done. Uh-huh. And I believe Powers, the DNA didn't exclude him. There was unknown DNA. But the woman had said she had had sex with somebody earlier prior to her encounter with Powers. So unknown male DNA is not necessarily a surprise. Um, And I believe that he's still in prison in Tennessee, convicted of rape. Uh, But anyway, so then for some reason between 2011 and 2018, 
nothing happens. And then all of a sudden in 2017, 2016, there are there is a rape and murder case in St. Louis area in Missouri. A gentleman mm-hmm. by the name of Thomas Bruce okay. is arrested. He apparently, we spoke about this, he apparently went into a Catholic store, a store run by the Catholic Church, maybe a religious store, I'm not sure. Um, he raped two of the women. One of the women wouldn't cooperate, stood up to him, and he shot her and killed her. Um, Thomas Bruce was a Navy veteran, but apparently his transition back to civilian life was not a smooth one. Right. And it led to to this. Well, according to Barry Shack, after Bruce uh, after Bruce was arrested, uh, investigators from Missouri called Barry Shack and said, hey, this guy Thomas Bruce, there's a case in Tennessee. A Marine was murdered, and Thomas Bruce was in the same class with that Marine. And there was a graduation ceremony the next day, and Thomas Bruce was there. Now, Barry Sheck never volunteers any names of these investigators, and there were no affidavits from these investigators. Mm-hmm. And in fact, every bit of, of Barry Sheck's spiel to the media and petition seeking DNA testing on behalf of the estate of Sedley Alley was hearsay of what these investigators allegedly told Barry Sheck about Thomas Bruce. Right. There are also inconsistencies because counsel for the estate was interviewed on a podcast And he seemed to say that an anonymous letter was sent to someone, and we don't know who, because he wasn't real clear on that, that linked Bruce to Suzanne Collins' murder. Right. Again, the biggest flaw with the whole estate application for, for DNA testing, it's hundreds of pages. This this pleading is hundreds of pages, and yet um, there's no affidavits, there's no declarations from anybody with direct information that implicates Thomas Bruce, that implicates John Borup. And, and remember, John Borup and all the bullshit about John Borup was submitted in 2006. Right. So, um, so the the case has been briefed at the Tennessee Court of Appeal, and oral argument was actually held on on February third, twenty twenty one. Um, the state's argument was basically not only that the estate didn't have standing under the DNA statute to ask for DNA testing, but also that if if Allie didn't meet the requirements to get testing in 2004 and 2006, how can we say that the estate is entitled to testing now? Right. If he were to request it now, he wouldn't meet, he still wouldn't meet the criteria. 
Because again, the evidence against him is his confession, his statements while he was in the mental hospital, his statement to his wife and admission to his wife. I mean, yeah, I know, you know, Barry Sheck wants to say that all these people got it wrong. And he wants to say, oh, it was a false confession, false confession, false confession. He wants to question uh, when the investigators talked to Sedley Ali and how they talked to Sedley Ali and who was present and how much was recorded. These are all questions that should have been asked at his trial. Mm-hmm. That could have been asked at his trial or should have been asked in his first state post-conviction and federal habeas claims. Just right. because you right. just because you find a new angle 20 years later doesn't mean you're going to be successful. So sure. um, the, the state also, uh, you know, when we have to look at it, while the Innocence Project says, you know, April Alley has a right to do this testing to finally know whether her father was guilty or not. Um, the state. The you know court of public opinion says, well, what what is the state hiding? Why won't they let her do this DNA testing? Don't they want to know the truth? They know the truth. The truth was determined at Sedley Alley's trial. Right. And nothing Sedley Alley ever presented undermined or refuted that truth, which is that Sedley Alley kidnapped, beat and murdered Suzanne Collins. Mm-hmm. And again, nothing has ever changed that reality. You can, you know, you can go off on a lot of tangents. You can talk about Thomas Bruce. You can say he was in Millington, even though I think you and I spoke about it. He was assigned in California and had been in California for some time. Mm-hmm. If he's in a sign, if he's assigned in California, he ain't coming back to Millington for a graduation the next day. No. And they say he was in the same class, but what you know? If he he what his ass wasn't in class that day, his ass was in California. So, um, they, and they don't offer any they don't offer any records that show. Thomas Bruce, Suzanne Collins being literally in the same class at the same time. Right, exactly. So, uh, and I'll say it again, it remains my opinion that it is impossible for anyone with half a brain to confuse a Mercury station wagon and a Dodge Aspen station wagon. Yeah, and I'm that. Wondering. That is uh, that remains my opinion. Uh, I I just don't see how anybody could possibly confuse the two. So, uh, Jody Arias, um, let's well, finish the A's quick, and then into, real quick. Okay. We get into Jody. Uh, let's go ahead and take our break. We're right up on the hour mark. Okay. Actually, a little bit past it. And uh, when we come. Okay. Back, I wanted to finish the A's, but all right. All right, oh, I'll bow to my producers. I think let's finish the A's, and then we'll take a break. We've only got two more. Okay, we'll go ahead and finish. And that. I won't talk about them as much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, Jody Arias, 
Uh, her conviction and sentence were affirmed in opinions of the Arkansas, I mean, our Arizona Court of Appeals uh, on March 24th, 2020 and April 21st, 2020. Her conviction and sentence are now final because she did not file a writ to the United States Supreme Court within 90 days of the April 21st date. Uh, her lawsuit against Kirk Nurmi has been dismissed. Uh, that was a voluntary dismissal. Um, I think basically her attorneys or whoever filed it on her behalf realized that she can't sue Kirk Nurmi for what she wanted to sue him for. He was appointed counsel. Uh, he was forced to continue to represent her. So uh, I'd love to talk to him, but I don't want to uh, stir up any more hornet's nests for him with her or her crazy nutty followers. And she has right. filed a post-conviction notice on February 11, 2021. So she is pursuing a post-conviction claim in state court, and hopefully uh, those documents will become available at some stage. And then finally, um, before the break, uh, Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey, state of Wisconsin versus Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey for the murder of Teresa Halbuck. Jody Arias murdered Travis Alexander in 2008, June 4th, 2008, after driving mm-hmm. a thousand miles from Wairika, California, to Mesa, Arizona, uh, and then tried to say that he attacked her and she was defending herself and that he was abusive, and that was all lies. Jo- Jody Arias, you know, you can't believe her even if her tongue came notarized. No, uh, that's right. Yeah, Stephen Avery, Brendan Dassey for the murder of Teresa Halbach on Halloween 2005, I believe. Uh, Brendan Dassey's request for clemency or a sentence reduction was denied by the governor of Wisconsin. Okay. Um, He will serve out the rest of his sentence. And it's a shame that had his family not interfered, and let him testify against Stephen Avery, he might be out of prison already. Because if he had been willing to testify, he would have gotten a you know lesser charge. He would have been able to plead to a lesser charge. Um, you know, I I don't I think he just kind of got caught up in events. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, and maybe even to a degree was afraid of Avery and wasn't going to say no when Avery offered to let him participate in whatever was being done to Teresa Hallbuck. Um, so his family didn't do that, so he'll serve whatever. I think he'll, I think he's eligible for parole, but it's in the 2030s or the 2040s sometime. Okay. I'm not positive on that. I'll look that up and clear it up next week. Uh, Stephen Avery, uh, briefing has been completed in his post-conviction appeals claim. Uh, The case was submitted on briefs on November 9th, 2020, so there will be no oral argument. Uh, The state had kind of an an interesting argument 
or thread that kind of ran through its brief. Um, you know, the brief that Kathleen Zellner submitted was 130 or 140 pages. And most of it was speculatory um, declarations that they have, you know, they have totally refuted all of the evidence at trial, that everybody got it wrong, um, that yeah. uh, there's evidence that proves that Bobby Daffy and Scott Taddock had something to do with it and, and a lot of circular logic and things like that from Kathleen Zellner. Um, and that may have worked for Ryan Ferguson in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think one of the problems is that Kathleen Zellner has not identified a legitimate underlying Brady claim or constitutional claim that's going to get Stephen Avery's foot in the door. She's labeling and declaring things to be Brady violations of Brady claims. And, you know, it's funny, they, they, they recently have uh, a thread about some flyover video that was edited. And, of course, Avery's trial attorneys are saying, the state never told us they edited that video. But these are all things that should have been, could have been asked at trial could have right. been investigated and found at trial. If the video was edited, I don't see how attorneys could look at it and not realize it's edited. Right. So, now granted, I'm not up 100%. There's so much chaff involved in Avery and Dassey that I don't really dive as deeply into it as I, I should. Um, right. But, uh, yeah, that's that's going to be, and, you know, I, I don't think things are going real well for Kathleen Zellner. Her house in Chicago area was just put on the market for like a million bucks. Damn. Um, I I don't know that things are going and Kathleen's uh, getting up there in years mm-hmm. and you know the that's she's in her seventies now so we'll have to see right we'll have to see what the Wisconsin Court of Appeals does right. Because, I mean, really, we're getting to the nitty-gritty with Avery anyway. Um, Well, you know, know, this is... Well, he hasn't been in federal court, but that's another thing that kind of concerns me. He had had his first state post-conviction claim, and really what Zellner should have done, I think, was gone with that in federal court. Uh But she wanted to do this new investigation. She does these, quote, innocence investigations, but I think think those are more for the benefit of the court of public opinion. She knows they're not going to fly with the trial court. And Ryan Ferguson, none of her shtick would have done him any good 
if she hadn't found legitimate Brady violations in the police investigation of the murder. The only thing with Avery that makes me interested in seeing how it plays out is with making a murderer coming out and shining this controversy on it, I wonder if this one has enough steam to end up ending like West Memphis 3 did in that, you know, eventually somebody may put enough pressure on the state of Wisconsin that he gets released. Well, I don't know that that, I don't, never say never, but I really don't think that that's going to happen because Avery, while making a murderer, had some impact. I think for a lot of people like me, it was so, I mean, it was worse than West Memphis 3. It was so blatantly misleading okay and then when you look at it like the the fact that they they literally took trial testimony and changed and cut and and like put a no where a yes should have been or put a yes where a no was right it was intentional. Um, and you know, and the whole and the whole bullshit about the the lawsuit against Manitowoc County. Yes, Stephen was asking for thirty six million dollars. He wasn't going to get it. He might have gotten six figures, or he might have gotten seven figures. Step back. He might have gotten in the million somewhere. Mm-hmm. Okay. It wasn't going to be no $36 million. And to even get in the millions, he was going to, he and his family were going to have to lie a lot, a lot, a lot about his part in Avery Salvage and his impact of his incarceration on Avery Salvage. Mm-hmm. Because as I understood it, he just worked for Avery Salvage and he had no stake in it aside from being a worker just like any other worker I could be wrong but that was his dad and his brothers mm-hmm. so um, and, and saying he was suing for $36 million and and saying that that phone call to Andy Colburn took Again, that that phone call was not was not the smoking gun because in the phone call the guy never mentioned Stephen Avery's name. The detective calling in from Brown County. I don't think he even mentioned Alan's name, who was the true rapist. He just said, "We have a guy who says he committed a rape that another guy's in prison for." And what do you know about that? And Colbert said, I have no clue. Let me put you through to the detectives. So. You don't think it'll have the same effect, basically? Because it's. No. 
Right. No. I, see I don't think. And, you know, what happened with what really benefited the West Memphis Three was that Brent Davis left the prosecutor's office and was elected to David Burnett's old seat on the bench. And Scott Ellington, who had no trial experience, came in as a DA and did not want to be bothered. Right. And so he was willing, if the three would plead guilty in some form or fashion, he was willing to to open the door and let him out. To just be done with it. And to be done with the bullshit of phone calls and cards and letters and the media campaign and the court of public opinion. I mean, mind you, I don't think Avery's got the same sort of media campaign that WM3 had behind him. But, you know, it's probably, I will say this, it has the potential to come closest to the highest amount of media attention after West Memphis 3 that I've seen since. Well, but you also have to remember, Stephen Stephen Avery, Stephen Avery was not an 18-year-old dark wizard. Right, right. Stephen Avery also had a little more... uh, Passed off... Who passed off Metallica lyrics as deep poetry. He was an illiterate, he was an illiterate, poorly educated, um, mentally challenged, fat white guy in his 40s. Right. And like I said, the the evidence was a lot more damning for Avery than it was for WM3. Mm, eh, not necessarily. Was Avery Avery wasn't that circumstantial, was it? Yeah, because it was Avery. Property. No, no, right. they found burned remains of a body. Oh, okay. They found burned remains. They did not have a body. They could not definitively <laughs> say cause of death, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. So, it no. It was the bones. I forgot. Correct. Yeah. They had, she the was at Avery's. Yeah. They had, she was at Avery's house, and then nobody ever saw her or heard from her again. Oh, yeah, that is kind of circumstantial, I guess. I guess it wasn't as damning as what I thought it was. Yeah. Eh. So. Okay. You've been around me too long. Right. <laughs> right, yeah. right, right. All right. Well, why don't we take the break? that break and, and have uh listen to your commercial. I'm looking forward right to it. Right on, Will. We'll be right back with more clear and convincing after this and yeah, yes. Yeah. 
March 13th, 2021, live from the Hard Rider Bar and Grill in Cabot, Arkansas, the Arkansas Wrestling Organization, in conjunction with Podcast Network 49 and Hard Rider Bar and Grill, presents AWO Anniversary 2, the second anniversary of the fastest rising promotion in the state of Arkansas. On the card that night will be an open invitation ladder match for the Bar Brawl Championship. Will Justin Vincent's Miracle Reign atop the Bar Brawl series come to an end? Also that night in the number one contender match for the AWO Tag Team Championship, see the Lost Souls Ray Ray and Josh Cross take on the debuting Dead West in what is sure to be an absolute war. For the AWO Tag Team Championship, see Team Pretty Queer take on the Young Ghost in what could go down as the most dangerous title defense of their reign. And after months and months of unprovoked and infuriating attacks, the boss has finally decided to allow the psychotic one to take care of business, as the psychotic savior will meet great infection. Finally, after holding the title for nearly the entire two years of its existence, D-Mike must step into the unfamiliar role as challenger as he receives his last opportunity that the AWO champion guarantees for the AWO championship in a last man standing match. All this and more will be coming your way live on March 13, 2021 from the Hard Rider Bar and Grill. At 6613 John Harden Drive in Cabot, Arkansas. The opening bell will be at a special start time of 7 p.m. This is a 21 and up show and masks are required. Come on out and join the AWO for Anniversary 2. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We the jury duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oath do find the defendant as to count one first degree murder guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good evening. This is clear and convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdicts. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A. Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. All right. And <laughs> we're back. All right. Well, that sounds like an interesting... Uh, an interesting show coming up. Yep, absolutely. Can't wait. 
Uh, March 11th, we're going to have it streaming live on Podcast Network 49's Facebook, on the YouTube. So we're going to have it all over the place. So definitely cool. uh, encourage you, if you're not in the central Arkansas area, to check it out in those platforms. All right. All right. So back to our review. And um, looking at the time, I spent a little bit longer on some cases than I should have. My apologies. <laughs> yeah, we may we may have to we may have to go into speed round. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Linda Cardi, Linda Cardi has requested a authorization from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal to file a successive habeas claim based on, quote, new evidence, which is more or less just the fact that her counsel Baker bots who are being employed by uh, the British consulate and a couple of other entities who are opposed to the death penalty and opposed to a British citizen like Cardi uh, being executed in the United States, um, They've gone out and they've managed to get affidavits and declarations from her co-conspirators and some of her trial witnesses that said, basically said, oh, the the DAs were mean. They threatened me. I didn't want to testify against Linda Cardi. Uh, Everything I said at trial was a lie that the district attorneys made me tell. Yada, yada, yada. Well, this is all well and good. But the petition was denied on August 25th, 2020, because in her pleadings and in her briefs, Cardi failed to show that any of these statements or recantations from these witnesses were unavailable to her in her prior habeas claim. Um, This is kind of similar to the state court claim that we kind of briefly touched on where we talked about her case initially. Uh, basically, she right. had some so of her, her trial same. witnesses who, yeah. But um, these are all things that, right. And and really, most courts, even when you have a trial witness that gives you an affidavit that says they lied at trial because the, 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 the district attorney made them lie, um, right. The courts generally don't look on that very favorably. And I mean, yeah. they generally, the witness doesn't come in and basically subject, subject themselves to a potential perjury charge by getting up on the stand and admitting that they lied in their trial testimony. They, they're not going to you know, they're not going to believe the affidavit that says the DA's made me lie. Right. Why would you believe because somebody that is already admitting the, they lied? It, it, yeah. Oh, well, it's it's more that they're not going to, if they're not going to suffer the consequences, what happened, for example, I'll use Eccles Baldwin and Miss Kelly. Uh, Vicki Hutchison, after the trials, she did him and she told Dan Stidham that every word of her testimony was a lie that the DA forced her to tell. Mm-hmm. And I think she gave 
similar statements to investigators for Eccles, Baldwin, and Miscelli. However, when she was called into the courtroom to testify in Rule 37 hearing, she refused to testify. Mm-hmm. Because she couldn't testify and say, I committed perjury. She didn't want to suffer the consequences of that perjury. Huh. And of course the attorneys for right. Baldwin and Ms. Kelly tried to get the state to say, Oh, we won't we won't charge her, we won't convict we won't we won't charge her, we won't try her and the state was like, Ha ha, no way. You you right. can't because you can't have a trial witness saying I lied but I'm not going to get up there and testify that I lied unless the state says they're not going to par- prosecute for me for perjury. I mean, if you're going to say right. you committed perjury, suffer the consequences of the perjury. Right. And if now, you're not willing to suffer those consequences, then obviously you're not willing to admit that, you know, obviously yeah. something here, we, we need and to a, figure something out here. Of course, you know, the question becomes, were they lying then or are they lying now? Right. So, um, and some of the allegations that she, that she made in the successive petition were actually allegations and arguments that she raised in her prior petitions. Only now she's like, see, look, I have declarations where the witness actually says, what I claim they said. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, um, again, that was denied on the 25th of 2020. Um, that's the end of that. <laughs> I don't think it's even appealable to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I don't think she's she's filed anything at the Supreme Court. She would have 90 days to have done that. Right. If she um let's see. She did file a she did file a claim related to uh her cumulative error claim in twenty eighteen, but she did not file a new petition uh, based on this refusal to allow her to file a successive writ. So that writ is done. Um, However, Harris County's DA has not been requesting execution dates. Right. Um, And there are several cases, Cardi's among them, that are ripe for an execution date. Uh, Everything, you know, all, all avenues have been exhausted. And so I don't know... What's going to happen with Harris County? Um, there probably won't be an execution date until another DA is elected. And Harris County may remain progressive. I don't know. So then uh, Kevin Cooper, State of California versus Kevin Cooper. Ke- Cooper was an escapee from uh, Chino Prison in 1984. Next week I'm putting the years For all those cases Right Or 1983 Um, He was hiding out in a house 
nearby was a home owned by chiropractors Doug and Peggy Ryan, who had two children, Jessica and Josh. Mm-hmm. Jessica, Josh, Doug, Peggy, and jo- uh, Josh's friend Chris Hughes went to a barbecue. They came back to the house. Chris was going to spend the night with Josh. They came home. They went in the house. Apparently, the family went to bed. Sometime during the night, Cooper broke into their house. He attacked Doug and Peggy. There was probably a lot of screaming. Uh, Jessica probably came to the room to investigate. She was attacked and killed. And then Josh and Chris came to investigate. They were attacked. Christopher was killed. Josh was severely wounded. And by some miracle, he survived through the night until Chris Hughes' father came and found the carnage. Um, He was able to uh, be saved by doctors at a nearby hospital after he was was life-flighted there. Um, He was only eight. He had severe head injuries. He gave, over the course of time, some inconsistent statements. Um, Initially, he thought that three men who visited the property, either white or Hispanic, he wasn't sure, uh, might have been involved. But then later statements that he made, he only ever referred to he. He never said they when he was describing what happened, what he experienced. And um, oddly enough, Cooper... In the Ryan's car, which he denies, um, he dropped the car off in Long Beach. He had connections to Long Beach. And then he made his way down to Mexico, began working on a boat under an assumed name, and while in the harbor in Santa Barbara, tried to rape, rape a woman at knife point. When the harbor patrol or the Coast Guard or whoever had jurisdiction over that part uh, responded to the claim, uh, responded to the call about the rape. Uh, Cooper jumped into the Pacific Ocean and got into a dinghy and tried to escape. Mm-hmm. And then, when he was arrested, uh, he had been held in Chino under a false name. And the, I think one of the reasons he, you know, escaped from Chino was he knew the jig was just about up. Because he had given this false name, but they were going to get his fingerprints. Mm-hmm. And his fingerprints were going to identify who he really was. He was an escapee from a mental hospital in Pittsburgh, Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, he was a burglar who had been escalating for some time. So all this you know, stuff about him not being capable of killing the Ryans is just... BS that ignores his history. He even admitted to a rape in Pittsburgh when he was burglarizing a house. And a friend of of one of the residents came to visit. 
So, you know, peaceful, peaceful, wonderful Kevin Cooper that we hear about from folks like Kim Kardashian is a fiction. Um, and this has nothing okay. to do with his race. This is just that deep down inside, if he were a white guy, he'd be just as awful. Right. Um, so, you know, before we get on that little train. Um, so Governor Brown, before leaving office, and Governor Newsom, the incoming governor, each ordered certain evidence be tested for DNA. Now, Cooper has had DNA testing in 2002, and even though he thought the DNA testing would exonerate him, it ended up implicating him, proving his guilt. So then he claimed tampering, and frankly, had the DNA testing this last round, had it incriminated him? he would have just claimed that his DNA had been planted. Even though, you know, they they planted your DNA on stuff that nobody ever was going to test until you demanded that it be tested. Okay. Um, So there was uh, an attempt to identify where DNA on the tan T-shirt that had been found to contain blood from Doug Ryan and and Kevin Cooper in the 2002 testing. Um, As with the 2002 testing where they attempted to get where DNA from the armpits and around the collar, uh, they were unable to get where DNA. So nothing Uh different from prior testing. There was unknown male DNA that was insufficient for comparison found on a towel that appeared to have been taken from the Ryan house and had been found near the tan t-shirt. However, the profile was sufficient to exclude Lee Furrow, who also gave reference samples of his DNA. Um, They have reference samples from Chris Hughes, Doug Ryan, and Josh Ryan. But they don't have reference samples from officers, which a towel could have touched DNA. Um, so really the the testing, as somebody once said in reference to another case, I think it was Swearingen, the testing didn't advance the ball the way they thought it would. Uh, and of course, the, the reason it didn't advance the ball the way they thought it would is because the state of California, evil, bad state, wouldn't let them do the testing sooner. Mm-hmm. But that's just bull. <laughs> okay. Right. Because, the, you know, they did the wearer DNA. They tested for wearer DNA in 2002. Um, and like I said, had it come out, has, had Kevin Cooper's DNA been found on that towel, and Doug Ryan's DNA been found on that. And Cooper would just be claiming, as he claimed with all his DNA from the T-shirt, that it was planted. Um, interestingly enough, Kristoff, um, uh, this is his last name. I don't know his first name. I don't care to know his first name. He is a New York Times writer who is so 
in love with Kevin Cooper. It's disgusting. Um, he can no longer mention Furrow by name in his art pro Cooper articles, but he does continue to make the same allegations. Girlfriend called and turned him in and said his coveralls were missing and said a T-shirt was missing. Uh, but he makes the same allegations and alludes to Furrow's guilt. But he can no longer mention him by name because now he's been excluded by DNA too. Right. So um, there was also a challenge filed by Cooper and other death row inmates to California's, as near as I can figure, California's lethal injection protocol. And because Governor Newsom had a moratorium on the death penalty, and apparently his AG is not really um, all that interested in carrying out executions either, uh, the AG and the prisoners entered into a an agreement that basically conceded that the current state protocol didn't pass muster. Again, this is near as I can figure uh, based on the, the resources that I've had access to so far. So when the parties, the DAs from San Bernardino, Riverside, and a couple of other counties tried to intervene in the federal case, uh, but they were denied that opportunity by the district court. That decision is on appeal. And the appeal was recently argued in, I think it was January, at the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeal. Uh, basically, the AGs, the, the DAs rather, think that the AG is kind of um, not really interested in enforcing the law in California just as Governor Newsom is not interested in enforcing the law in California because Californians voted not, I repeat, not to repeal the death penalty statutes. In fact, as I recall, the support for the death penalty proposition was pretty overwhelming. Yeah. Um. And the, the support for the abolishing the death penalty moratorium uh, proposition was not so much. So, uh, you know, and, a, and an individual governor and even his individual attorney general can, you know, they can say, okay, well, I'm not going to ask for death. I'm not going to ask for execution dates. And in California, it's the governor. Um, or the or the attorney general's office, but to kind of collude with death row inmates and say, yeah, the protocol sucks. We're we're going to say it's wrong. It doesn't meet constitutional, and so now we have to rework it. And now the you know the next governor that comes in is going to have no protocol because he's going to have a prior AG who said the protocol was wrong. And again, I could be totally wrong. I mean, I, I didn't have a lot of, <laughs> I didn't have any of the briefs. Um, this is what I could, what I could uh, glean from the arguments. 
Um, so uh, one of the disturbing aspects, though, for me, as far as the whole thing, and, and if I can get a hold of the briefs, I will figure out whether I'm right or wrong, um, is that one of the judges on that Ninth Circuit panel is William Fletcher, and he has spoken and advocated for Kevin Cooper as far back as 2009. He authored a 100-plus page opinion dissent, rather, uh, when the Ninth Circuit denied Cooper a rehearing in connection with an appeal back in 2009. And as I said, he has spoken at several functions and advocated for Kevin Cooper. To have him serving on this panel in which Kevin Cooper is a plaintiff challenging his execution or an aspect of his execution, it concerns me. Especially given some of Fletcher's statements and and the uh, appearance of bias toward law enforcement and prosecutors in San Bernardino County in connection with Cooper's case. Mm-hmm. So we'll have to see how the Ninth Circuit rules on that. Um, I I literally, I just found this when I was doing my research last week. I had no idea it was going on, or I would have read it before now. Um, so anyway, so we'll, we'll keep an eye on that one, see how the Ninth Circuit rules. Um, hopefully they'll, they'll say, you know, the DAs have an interest. And so they should be a they should be a party to, you know, the dispute between the AG and the inmates where there's apparently no real dispute. So we'll have to see. All right, Dahlia DiPolito, everybody's famous favorite former escort. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, just, that name seems to haunt. Me. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, the Florida Supreme Court denied review of DiPolito's direct appeal on September 4th, 2019. She uh, filed a petition for writ of certiorari to the United States Supreme Court. That, too, was denied on February 24th, 2020. So her conviction and sentence are now final. Uh, there will be no fourth trial. But Wait. You say. Mm-hmm. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Dahlia DiPolito is pursuing state post conviction claims. Okay. Um, so far, they are limited to ineffective assistance of counsel related to the entry of poisoning allegation during cross examination of Muhammad Shahade during DiPolito's third trial in June of 2017. Basically, uh-huh. Dahlia DiPolito claims she had ineffective assist- assistance of counsel 
who opened the door to the poisoning allegations during questioning of Shahade. And frankly, she's exactly right because the judge literally, and I mean the, the transcript is several pages where the judge said, if you ask him A, B, and C, and he says yes, they are going to be able to ask him about these allegations because he talked about this in his initial interview with Point Beach Police Department. Um, so if you ask him, and basically what they were trying to do was they were trying to use Muhammad Shahade to negate intent to harm Michael DiPolito. Although, frankly, all the other evidence of her intent you know, her leaving the house the morning that the hit was supposed to take place, her taking all of her jewelry with her, her paying $1,200. All those things show an intent to harm Michael DiPolito. Um, so using Muhammad Shahade to try and negate that was a dumb idea to begin with. So really, in all honesty, I do think that they were ineffective. However, if they were ineffective because she said, you have got, he knows I wasn't going to hurt my husband. I mean, because these are the attorneys who put Dahlia on the stand to say this was all an acting project to get acting jobs by posting it on YouTube. If they believe yeah. that, I mean, you know, she must have told them that story right before she rendered services. And no, their brains were not functioning. Or maybe she told the story after rendering the services and the blood had not yet returned to their brains. Um, she's also claiming ineffective assistance because counsel failed to request a limiting instruction regarding the poison allegations. Uh, that counsel failed to retain and call expert witnesses who could have refuted Shahade's statement that she researched poison on the Internet, which I think that would have opened more doors to harmful information because apparently there was a smashed computer or a missing computer that they were never able to recover and so while they could examine Mike's computers, there was a computer that belonged to Dahlia that was either never found or was broken by the time they got it from her mom or something. That, as I recall, the um, poison candy. And then right. finally, uh, counsel failed to object during the prosecutor's improper closing argument which is kind of a kind of a standard claim. Um, the state's response to DiPolito's petition is due on March 18, 2021, and I am probably going to order that one from the court clerk because their public docket prints not certified across as a watermark across the documents, and when you print those out, it actually makes it very difficult to read. Right. Although, 
I might I might talk to some of the paralegals I work with and see if any of them can remove that because we have some you know higher higher level software. Um, I don't know. It's a it's a it's a possibility. Um, so that that will be a developing story, I'm sure. Um, I just hope I hope she testifies about this whole acting project thing again very soon, and that the feed is clearer than the first one was. Uh, then we have Christopher Dunch. He is the uh, orthopedic surgeon, spine surgeon, who was maiming and mauling and killing patients. Um, yeah, he was the one who was apparently a sociopath in right? Scrubs. Hmm. Oh wait, no, he was a doctor. He was just fucking insane. He was a real doctor, but he was a sociopath in Scrubs, and right. he was um, either poorly trained or or lacked aptitude, according to some of the surgeons who had to fix his work. Um, mm-hmm. The Court of Criminal Appeals in Texas refused discretionary review of his direct appeal from the appellate court. The mandate issued from his direct appeal on October 1st, 2019, and there was no writ filed within 90 days. So his conviction and sentence became final on December 30th of 2019. Now, uh, Baker Donaldson a law firm that has offices in Tennessee and Texas, uh, they sent letters to the TCCA requesting copies of the record in Dutch's case, and they got a copy of the record on August 21, 2019. They have filed nothing in the trial court as far as post-conviction claims. In December of 2019, there is another letter that shows up on the TCCA docket and a response sent by the TCA, TCCA uh, to that, whoever wrote that letter, but it's not clear what the letter, who the letter was from or what it was about. Mm-hmm. Um, the next step for Dunch will be state post-conviction claim, but none has been filed as of 2021, and um, given that it's been two years since Baker Donaldson received the records mm-hmm. or a year, a little bit over a year because it was August to 2020. Um, there may be some allowance for COVID issues in early 2020, but I think, you know, most places are, most clerk's offices are back to business as usual. So we'll have to wait and see if Dunch files a post-conviction claim in Texas. Um, and then Eccles, Arkansas versus Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly. Uh, I think we briefly mentioned it. We talked about it before we went on the air for sure. Jesse Miss Kelly Sr. passed away on February 21st, 2021. He was 82, born September of 1938. Uh, he passed away at home. I have heard for several years now that his health was not good. I don't 
think his health was good during Paradise Lost, at least not the second and third one. Yeah, I know he had, he definitely had some alcohol abuse issues. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether he had drug abuse issues, um, but definitely had alcohol abuse. And he was a smoker, so he probably had COPD. Uh, he was a mechanic. He probably had mesothelioma. Um, I don't know what the nature uh, or what caused his death, um, but it is what it is. So that is um, that's really the only news. Um, I, but I will point out that it is 2021. The three have not been exonerated by any court. Their Alfred pleas right. have not been vacated, and they have filed right. no motions or other challenges to those Alfred pleas in any court. Yeah, I don't expect Also, if they haven't yet, they're not going to. Their SIS agreements expire in August of 2021 after 10 years. Right. One would think if they were jail. actually innocent – and these Alfred pleas were forced down their throats, and they, you know, information wasn't disclosed to them, et cetera, et cetera. Why have they not challenged the Alfred pleas? True. In all of this time. But, you know, the court of public opinion believes they're innocent, and that's all that really matters to them. I mean, true. Uh, so, uh, and they still have their little minions who will harass Terry Hobbs. And of course, I think you heard Mark Byers died in a car accident back in June. Yes, I think we talked about that, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you know, uh, wherever they are, I wonder if Mark Byers, if some six foot five was kicking some little five foot butt somewhere um sorry that's my dog <laughs> mm-hmm. it happens um curtis flowers the gentleman who was tried six times for the tardy furniture store murders in mississippi who was convicted and whose conviction was reversed by the u.s supreme court mm-hmm. um last summer summer before last um, and the district attorney elected not to try him a seventh time. Uh, he has filed a wrongful imprisonment complaint in the court in Madison County, in state court in Madison County, mm-hmm. Mississippi. Now, this may not be a case that's going to be litigated. This may be a requirement for him to collect under the Mississippi's compensation statute because wrong, wrong, they have a wrongful incarceration statute where you collect so much per year of incarceration up to $500,000. Right. And I'm sorry, y'all, the, the uh, puppy mama is not here, so I can't close the door. It happens. 
And I apologize. I know he's barking his little head off, but if I close the door, it's only going to get worse. Um, and then also the four African-American voters and the NAACP filed a case against Doug Evans, the prosecutor in Flowers' case uh, in the Northern District of Mississippi. And they were basically seeking to prevent Evans from using discriminatory practices in jury selection. Um, The district court has dismissed that claim, basically finding that it is not uh, proper for the district court to make such a ruling and that really that the individuals who are making the claim or who are seeking the relief are not um, are not parties withstanding. If he's using discriminatory jury selection practices, the defendant and the counsel for the defendant have remedies to address that issue. A juror who is actually um, excused, even though they are qualified to serve, would have remedies. Mm-hmm. But, you know, these individuals are not saying, I was a juror and he discriminated against me in the Flowers case. Um, so that is now going to be appealed to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And um, that literally just process has just begun. So there's no briefing or any schedule or anything at the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. The notice was filed. I think they're probably going to have a record prepared and sent by the U.S. District Court. So I'll keep an eye on that. And then finally, um, Robert Frada. Uh, He was a former Missouri City, Texas public safety officer. Some articles call him a police officer, but he really wasn't a police officer. He didn't work for a police department. He worked for a public safety agency, which may be kind of like, you know, patrol the parks, um, enforce municipal ordinances. It's not really clear what Frada did for the Missouri City. Uh He he may have even done some firefighting for them. I don't freaking know. But anyway, he is the gentleman who was involved in a bitter divorce with his uh, former wife, Um, child custody issues. There was a deposition given by his wife, and in that deposition, his wife exposed some perhaps embarrassing sexual practices, proclivities, and fetishes that Frada held, Mm -hmm. uh, including being defecated on, uh, consuming fecal matter, and um, things that that embarrassed Frada uh, that didn't look good in the divorce. And so he reached out to a guy at the gym, and the guy at the gym reached out to a guy he knew. And come down to it, Frada gave him a gun, and the guy that he knew, who was an 18-year-old kid from Louisiana, Remy, 
Hang on a moment. You're fine. Come. Down. That poor Down. Puppy just wants to Listen to me talk for one more minute. Good boy. Okay. So anyway, sorry. <laughs> I got him in here. He's going to wander off. He's got the attention span of a gnat. Um, that poor so, baby just wants some attention. <laughs> Yeah, he does, and and I have to take him outside when we get done. So that's going to be fun because it's freaking cold again. Right. Um. So Gidry, this eighteen-year-old kid from Louisiana, living in Houston, uh, he's dropped off at the house. Dash Joseph, the friend from the gym. Um, he waits in the garage or waits in a a playhouse in the backyard. Farah. Frada's wife comes home after getting her hair cut. Um, I think she's got to go pick up her kids from her parents' house. Or no, her kids are with Frada. So he's got the kids with him, so he's got an alibi. But at least they're not there when their mother's murdered, right? And um, Gidry goes in the garage, shoots Farrah in the head. He's seen getting into Price Dash's car, which Price Dash tries to get rid of, but People already know it was his car. You know, I mean, there was a lot of evidence that tied Price Dash and Gidry. It's, Frada had evidence tying him to Price Dash. Uh, and then Price Dash's girlfriend kind of put the big bow on the whole thing. Uh, Frada was convicted of conspiracy to commit murder and first-degree murder because in, you know, in, you don't have to pull the trigger to commit first-degree murder. If you give somebody a gun and tell them kill that person, you're committing first-degree murder without pulling the trigger. Um, Especially in a state like Texas. Uh, He is trying to get the federal court to reconsider his um, federal habeas claims. So he keeps following these pro se motions to reconsider. And one of the other problems is that he has attorneys representing him. But he keeps filing his own motion. So the court has kind of said, look, I'm going to keep striking these. If you have issues, have your attorneys address them. Um, and so it's just a big mess. And he's he's one of those people that thinks he knows, but he doesn't. So he's really doing himself more harm than good. Um, so he's trying to get the federal court to reconsider. He filed a motion to reconsider. Uh, the federal court denied it. Now the Fifth Circuit's going to weigh in. Um, he's also trying, He and he tried to get U.S. Supreme Court to say, hey, look, a federal habeas petitioner can represent himself pro se and have attorney." And in the federal system, attorneys are appointed and paid for by, like, a public defender's commission. So right. somebody's paying for him. It's not the petitioner because he's indigent because he's in prison right. on we death row. But some taxpayers somewhere are being are paying, you know. Right. Exactly. So... Um, if you're if you're gonna have them, and I don't know, I don't think that you really have a right to represent yourself in post conviction litigation. 
Remy. Enough. Okay. So, all right. So that is part one. We finished. Yay. Um, Yay. I'll keep an eye again on the Fifth Circuit. Um, there really was nothing new in Alverson in Oklahoma, Bianchi in California, Broderick in California, Clemens in Missouri, although he did plead guilty to the murders in Missouri and St. Louis um, in December of 2019, which is right after we, right before we talked about his case. Uh, James mm-hmm. Bailey, uh, Ronald DeFeo, Brian Draper, Kenneth Foster, Antoinette Frank and Rogers Lacaz, or Her- uh, Joseph Guidry and How- Howard Price, How- Howard Guidry and Joseph Price Cash. Um, nothing really new going on. Um, although Daly's Supreme Court claim may have been denied, I can't remember whether we talked about it after that happened or before. But at any rate, um, um, right. he had, um, I don't think he's had another execution date set in Florida. I believe they are litigating uh, issues in Florida. And I will, I'll see if I can figure out what's going on with that. Nothing came up in a new search. So they're probably briefing right now. Right. So, um, so that's pretty much it for part one. Okay. And um, let me see. I gotta find my. All right. Yeah, I got my thing. So that's part one. <laughs> and there's a lot to go over. Yeah, there was. Even though COVID, even though COVID's yeah. going down. Yeah. Uh, because some of these things happened in 2019 and early 2020 before. But things are getting back to more, almost a, a normal. It very, it's going to vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, though. I mean, New Orleans and Orleans Parish, we had, um, we had trials set and we had everything going back to normal, and then they did another moratorium because our numbers started spiking again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had uh, they had an issue in East Baton Rouge, I think it was, where they couldn't get enough people to seat a jury, so they couldn't try jury cases. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess because they they couldn't have it, they couldn't have a big enough pool gather at the courthouse. So. Right. I, I mean, you would think you would think that as long as they wore masks, it would be fine for them to sit in the jury box together. Uh, yeah. I don't know. That's I think the weird. I think the issue is more with jury pools. Um, you know, the you have 
sometimes up to 100 people. Because jury, you know, especially in a criminal case, you have to keep the jurors segregated from the rest of the courthouse as much as possible. Mm-hmm. True. And so they all have to stay in one little room in the basement. I mean, when I did my jury duty in criminal court, you know, we were in a little, well, it was a medium-sized room in the basement. Mm-hmm. Um, you you entered through a a side door. You went through a parking garage to the jury room, and then you sat in the jury, uh, well, call it a jury room. It wasn't the jury room. It was like the, well, the jury pool room. And then if you were on a jury, the, a jury room would be upstairs in, you know, in your courtroom, near your courtroom. So, Yeah. But it it was uh, an interesting, and I I still want to get one of those. I want to get Judge Lori White. I'm gonna have to email her again because she gave a really interesting talk uh, prior to on our first day, and I really want to get her in to talk about what a judge actually does because I I see in lay comments people that really don't understand what what a judge's function is. Yeah, a judge is basically a referee yeah. from what I understand. Yeah, and, you know, they're basically, they, they do, they have to determine what's admissible, what's not, what's relevant, what's not. They kind of call the balls and the strikes um, is an analogy. Mm-hmm. Right, um, exactly. And it and, would be absolutely cool to... Uh, Yeah, well, the you know I've I've thought about reaching out to Judge Glenn Kelly, who presided over Dalia DiPolito's case, and he's been elect he's been elected by his fellow judges as the chief judge in that circuit in Palm Beach County. So mm-hmm. um, that you know, if that's like a four year term. You're elected by your fellow judges, and and it's pretty good, you know, pretty prestigious that your your fellow judges would feel that you have what it takes to be the chief judge. So right, all that right, would be pretty badass. Yeah, so I'll I may reach out to Judge Cowley. I'm gonna give I'm gonna reach out to Judge White one more time. And copy the public information people at uh, Orleans Parish Criminal Court. Um, and then I'll reach out to Judge Kelly and see if I can get him. Because I would love to talk to him. He was, he, was, he was really one of the better judges I've observed uh, in my years of criminal research as well as civil experience. Right. So, all right. Well, are we? Well, why don't we shut? Why don't we shut it down while Remy's being quiet and good? Okay. And and I'm I'm telling my sister you cannot be gone on a Tuesday ever again. 
<laughs> unless the dog is with you. So, so that this does not happen again. Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook, go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com, or follow me on Twitter at O'BrienLN. Join us next week on Tuesday, March 9th, 2021 at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 2, Updates Part 2. As we did tonight, we'll update listeners on developments and statuses of Oklahoma versus Glossop, Louisiana versus Hayes, Arkansas versus Stacey Johnson, Arkansas versus Liddell Lee, Tennessee versus Payne, and Texas versus Reed. Until then, have a great week and stay safe. Good night. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.